In short, as the marital bond between one man and one woman is to be inseparable, it is a shadow of a greater eternal inseparability. By the power of Jesus Christ, his people are bonded to him forever. As we open up today's text, we actually begin with a a brief tension regarding that bond. The, The woman in our story seems to lack confidence. She wonders if indeed now is the time to awaken love with this man that she desires. In other words, will this bond happen? Is it time? What about when it's threatened? Will she and her husband be inseparable? Let's take a look at the first two verses to begin and just set the scene. I'm going to read chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. She says this, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. Before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. The first thing we see here is the quickness of the bond. The woman in verse 11 is wondering about the budding of the vines and the pomegranates. Much of this imagery we've seen before, it all harkens back to this. She's wondering, is it springtime for love? Is it time to bond? Why does she have this hesitancy? I mean, we're like six chapters in. She should have this figured out, right? Well, I don't know. I mean, if if it were me, I might consider all the high callings and the standards that were set out in the previous two chapters. Many of the challenges Peter and Ryan laid out in their last two sermons, being faithful, being the husband of one wife, I might read those challenges and that call, and I might wonder, is my marriage going to be like that? (laughs) That could be the reason for her hesitancy. We don't know exactly, but I don't think that's the the point. The, The point is this, the hesitancy only lasts for a moment, and then it's gone. In verse 12, before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen. She has bonded quickly to this man, almost like superglue. Now, now the language here as to exactly how this happens, whether he like races by with his chariots and she's like awestruck and just jumps on. She runs to him. We don't know. There's actually debates among very respected commentators on how exactly this happens. But the point is this. Boy, did it happen. This marriage is, is quick. It's like in the blink of an eye, they've gone from, is marriage going to happen to, we are married. And I can relate to that. Perhaps some of you can too. I didn't even meet my wife until I was 26. And then I left town and we reconnected later. We began dating when I was 30. And just a year later, we were married. And the point is this. For me, the the first 29 years of life, there was really not much happening 
in the way of marriage. And then in just over a year's time, I went from not dating to married. And even if you were younger than that when you got married, you still, when you get married, you have spent all of your life up to that point not being married, independent. It really was a blur for me. And the point was for much of my life, I was independent and suddenly I am bonded to another person. It was a bit jarring, especially after all the excitement of the wedding wore off. What does a newly bonded couple do? That's exactly the situation our couple is about to find themselves in. They're going to find themselves facing a bit of a challenge. So I'm going to continue at verse chapter 6, verses 13, and I'm going to go through 7, 10. We're going to have a few people exchanging. We're going to see a challenge and then a response. So just pay attention to some of the imagery and we'll make sense of it. The others say this, return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that, that we might look upon you. But he, the husband, says this, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance between two armies? How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bond that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are pools in Heshbon by the gate of bath Rabim. Your nose It's like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I say, I'll climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples, and your mouth like the best wine. And she says this, It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. This section shows us not just the quickness, but the power of the marriage bond. The two are to be inseparable. Now, this is presented in the form of an outside challenge and a response by the husband. Did you see it? The challenge came from the others in verse 13. Perhaps they were playing the role of devil's advocate. It's kind of hard to tell what their motivations are. But there's this newly married couple. And then there's an outside cry that cuts in from friends. Come back. We want to see you. So what's exactly happening? Well, this is usually what happens after the wedding, isn't it? Married friends, especially newly married friends, sometimes this comes in more playful conversation. We don't see you anymore. Or sometimes it comes in the form of a real challenge, perhaps passive-aggressive or more overt, like perhaps... A mother-in-law who assumes that you and your new spouse are going to visit them on every bank holiday forever. 
or men, perhaps. This takes the form of text messages from your friends who still expect you to watch every single televised sporting event with them, no matter what. And maybe you're actually a little torn here. Maybe you've experienced this. The challenge that we're seeing here is who do we prioritize? And now there's a bit of a threat to the bond. And and please, before I go on, please don't hear me pitting single friends against newly married couples, because that can be awkward enough. The goal here is not that marriage is supposed to be an island, because that, for one thing, would conflict with a lot of other verses we've read so far, and it would really downplay, at the very least, the role of fellow believers in the life of a married couple, even the church itself. The goal is inseparability, And there is some trickiness there. But the husband shows us the appropriate response in verse 13 in the latter half. He says, why should you look at her as a dance between two armies? In other words, this is my wife. She is my highest priority now. Because she is. And he is hers. And he further responds to this challenge by giving her the most vivid description we've seen yet in chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. And she responds up through chapter 7, 10. And those that we just read, I think, are the most intimate words in the entire book. Now, I can't elaborate on everything that the husband says. But I'd like to make a few observations in what he says, and then we'll connect it back to to us. The first thing that stands out here is that this man is describing his wife from the feet up as opposed to the head down. This is unique to the book. And that is done much more essentially than any other description. But here's the thing. I want to show you just how intimate this is, not just physically, but spiritually. It shows us what this inseparability is really all about. The comments in chapter 7, verses 1 and 2 about this woman's thighs, for example, they're not simply about her. Did you see? They give glory to the work of a master craftsman. This husband is thanking God for his wife's body. And the comments on her navel and belly, they appeal to fertility, comparisons to the creator God himself. The point in all of these verses is that she has his complete attention. And so if a modern version of this guy, if his buddies are now trying to get him over for the big Ohio State-Penn State game, He's thinking, what is even the most important football game compared to this? He's simply prioritizing his new bride over them, 
In the same way, they ought to respect that bond and not try to coerce this husband, especially because he's new and inexperienced. And he's prioritizing his bride over them in the same way that hopefully they are prioritizing God in their hearts above football. It's just priorities. And this intimacy is deeply spiritual. In verses 4 and 5, the comments on her neck, her nose, and her head, they draw comparisons to strongholds, and especially in verse 5, he's comparing her crown to caramel, not like pouring caramel on her head. It's Mount Carmel. Um, This is a place where in the Old Testament, if you're familiar, the prophet Elijah defeated false prophets. It was a major victory for God's people. This was a sacred place. And he's saying, your head is literally holy ground. So as Mount Carmel was a sacred place of the Lord, so is this woman's mind to this husband. This husband desires his bride, body and soul, and it is almost tied up with the worship of God. It's almost like you can't separate the two when you do it right. She is his earthly priority. There's no dance between two armies. The wife says this herself in chapter 7, verse 10. And we've heard this line before. I am my beloved's, and he, his desire, is for me. And the craziest thing is you kind of have to squint a little bit. But even the husband, this kingly man, says essentially the same thing himself in verse 5. Take a look at verse 5. He says this, A king is held captive in these flowing locks of yours. Remember, this guy is described in kingly terms. He's talking about almost being subject to her. I mean, biblically speaking, this this is almost a scandalous language about mutual submission. The husband and the wife belonging to one another. And friends, in short, these two people have become rightfully inseparable. So how does this apply to us? Well, first, to those of you who are married, let me comfort you. The bond between you and your spouse is your highest earthly priority. It is right to think that. Other earthly relationships are present and valuable, yes. But none should replace your spouse. No hobby, no job, no ministry. Don't let those separate you from your spouse. And I say that because the picture here is of a lovely young couple 
devoting their full attention to one another. And to be fair, when you are young, that is easy. It's easy. Or I should say it's easier. Such it was for many of you, long married. But time passes. Maybe kids have entered the picture. Maybe responsibilities have grown. And if I dare say, maybe your youth has left you and the novelty physically of the other person has perhaps lost a little bit of its earthly luster. If I might be so bold. So, with that in mind, the bond is challenged. And it will start right away, and it will continue. So the married couples here, one possible application of many, revisit the strength of your bond. In other words, how's it going? One possible question for you to ask one another is this. Am I still making you my highest earthly priority? Am I still making you my highest earthly priority? You might be surprised by the answer. Or you might surprise them with the answer that you give. This is simply one example of what mutual submission looks like. You are seen by God as one flesh, but how it's playing out is you're still working out how to do that well here on earth. Now, mutual submission is a term that's clarified much later in the Bible in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, and it connects us to the perfect bond that Jesus has to his people as we move towards application and more the the climax of the, the text. It shows us Jesus. Ephesians 5.25 says this. Let's just read part of it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Gave himself up for her. So Christ, who's God the Son, gives himself up. Now how he did it was he submitted to God his Father And if you remember in the garden, he expressed his preference. Do you remember that? If it be your will, let this cup not be given to me. In other words, I don't want to die. But if that's your will, not mine, but yours be done. You see the same thing in Christian marriage. Not my will. But yours be done. And if it feels like death, it probably means you're starting to do it correctly. And so, married friends, you likewise are often called, and you might even have to initiate it, 
to place one another above your own personal preference. You will fail here. You're learning what it means to be inseparable. And ironically, in this trouble, that's when getting help from your church family is the most valuable. That's exactly why marriage isn't an island. Because when you struggle, you've got other married couples, you've got single friends with time. They might make observations you don't because they're not chasing kids all day. They might be able to help you too. We'll talk more about that later. Now, the unmarried, just a possible application, whether you're pursuing marriage or not, one possible application for you is to respect the quickness and power of that bond. In others, as you look at your married friends, for example, don't, don't feel slighted if your married friends seem a little distanced. They're learning inseparability. They're figuring it out. It's not easy. It might look like they're just having fun and at restaurants and never returning your calls. They're figuring it out. And as for your own pursuits, if you have them, here's another application regarding the power of that bond. Pursuing a romantic relationship without God's design for marriage is very dangerous. I mean, just imagine all of a sudden swept up and being bound inseparably with another person or one person after another who does not regard the mutual submission found in Christ. Just imagine a lifetime of that. It's almost like before you stick two things together with super glue, you should make sure they're the right two things. You ever stick your finger to something you don't want to? It's hard to undo that. Just like superglue, this can get quite messy. And, hey, let's be real. There are some faithful members here, for example, who are now following Jesus. They're married, but they didn't enter into marriage doing that. And there's some here that are now following Jesus but their spouses aren't. Now, there is pain in that, to be sure. And that is not the template for how to do things. But you know what? Praise God. He can actually use that for deeper intimacy with him. God is faithful to teach, even through brokenness. Marriage, even broken marriage, has brought much wisdom to many believers here. There are many married folks here and formerly married folks here who have a lot of wisdom for you, whether you're married or not. They can both lovingly warn other believers of the dangers, of the power of this marital bond and say, don't rush in or... They can help them see 
in any event, the deeper bond found in Jesus. And again, as we transition back to our couple, we see the young couple in today's text showing us not only the power and the quickness of the bond, but even the trajectory of the deeper purpose of the bond. This newly married couple in the song now long for a deeper bond in marriage. And in this, we will see a striking image of our Savior Jesus. Let me read chapter 7, verse 11, through the end of our text, 8, 4. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance and besides... Our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I've laid up for you, O my beloved. Oh, that you were a brother, like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. So finally here, after the initial bond, we see a longing for an even deeper bond. We also see a few strange phrases. So let's understand the scene. I need you to take an invisible line and draw it between chapter 7 and 8. In fact, maybe that's what the 8 is there for. We literally see a change in scenery, though it's not obvious. Chapter 7, what's left of it, takes place in more of a secluded country setting. The point? No people. This married couple is free to enjoy one another physically as much as they want. But then in chapter 8, verse 1, the last half, she says to her husband this phrase, if I found you outside, I would kiss you. And the outside, this and the verses following imply a bit more of an urban setting. It's like a mother's house. And in this culture just to maybe let you in on what could be happening here. In this culture, as in many other cultures that are not America, in more public settings, physical displays of affection, even between married couples, are off limits. That's why she says in chapter 8, verse 1, this kind of weird phrase, I wish you were like a brother. If they were family, they could hug and kiss and nobody would despise them. It would be fine. In other words, she wants something good. This couple is after a sort of shameless unity. They just want to be free, to be as deeply in love whenever they want, wherever they want. 
That's what they want. And friends, this should give you a picture of a return to the Garden of Eden when the husband and wife were naked and unashamed. Now what happened? What happened in that garden? Of course, most of you know. Shame happened and disunity between husband and wife. But that's not all. Disunity between people and God happened. Same Garden of Eden back in Genesis. So, what is the hope of this couple here for a deeper unity? It's the same hope that Adam and Eve have. And it's not this. It is not their bond that will save them, but it is God's bond to them that will save them. And all throughout history, we see that, don't we? All throughout the Old Testament, Israel failing to keep their half of the covenant, God faithfully disciplining them, but calling them back, and all the while promising that one day he will walk among them and he will be their God and they will be his people. In the same way, friends, marriage is both a powerful and a deepening bond, but it's not to glorify itself. It is meant to point all believers to the perfect bond found in Jesus Christ. That was the point of God's bond. It was Jesus. Just consider Jesus, who was bonded to the church when he died so that it could live and grow. And God's family, God's spouse, the church, could be composed of people from every nation. Anybody could be married to God. Consider Jesus who in Ephesians 5, where we read, after that, he is bonded to the church to present her spotless. He is faithful to her to the end, even as she fails. He will not leave his spouse. Consider Jesus who gives all of his people the hope of returning to sinless paradise. That was the call to Revelation at the beginning of this worship service. Jesus gives his people the hope, all his people the hope, of returning to sinless paradise with Christ as their husband. His alone is the bond that is perfect and lasts forever. Just as we read in the Chronicles of Narnia, it gets better as time passes. Each chapter is better than the one before. I'll tell you a story. When uh, Becky and I were looking at rings before we got engaged, she told me how marriage had kind of been displayed to her in some ways as something that just kind of 
coasts or love kind of fades, it drifts after a while. Love was maybe even something that dwindled over time. And so, by God's grace, when I picked out the engagement ring, I actually didn't pick a traditional engagement ring. Because I am artsy, and I have high standards. (laughs) No, I picked an anniversary band. Doesn't matter, it's a ring. (laughs) And, uh, And the thing about it is it has diamonds, and they start small, and they get a little bigger. Because that's what we wanted our marriage to look like. We wanted it to get bigger. Because that's the love Christ has for us. So that's what we want for each other. So what do we do with all that we've taken in here? How does this apply? If you don't know this Jesus... This selfless, sacrificial husband, even if you've been going to church your whole life, please know this. Marriage is good, but it is not the prize. Jesus is the prize. Marriage is good, but it is a shadow of the greater unity and eternal marriage found in Christ. No spouse can love you like he can. Of course, that is not an excuse for your earthly marriage to be lackluster. That should motivate you. Secondly, whether or not you know Jesus, please consider the warning repeated again in chapter 8, verse 4. Do not stir up this love carelessly. It is quick, powerful, and it is a shadow of a deeper bond in Christ. This is not a game. It's not to be toyed with. Don't just marry whoever and try to figure it out later. It is a fire. You can be burned by it, or you can be warmed by it. And that is where we land, whether you're long married, whether you're newly married, whether you're pursuing marriage, or whether you're not pursuing it, this is why we help one another do things the Lord's way, because he loves us perfectly. Because if we have spouses... We want them to know and love Jesus as we want the same thing for ourselves. And whether or not we have spouses, we want to love the married people around us here by helping them to get it right. Single friends, you can help more, a lot more than you might think. Because you know what I like? You know who advised married couples all the time? Paul. Was he married? 
No. Guess who else wasn't? Jesus. You think he has some advice to give? Here's the point. I think we can trick ourselves into thinking that you can only give out advice if you have experience. Don't we think that? You don't have kids. You can't tell me how to raise my kids. You're not a woman. You can't talk about women's lives or their rights. Or you're not married. What do you know? Your ability to help, Christian, is not based on mere marital experience, but it's built on something greater, and that's God's word, and you have it. And God's living in you. You can help your married friends, even if that's not a goal that you have for yourself. I might even add married friends. Your single friends might be able to see something in your life that you don't. Not just because they have more free time. They might say, hey, I remember when you prayed a lot. Now you're married. You still doing that? You can speak into their lives. And that is a good gift because marriage is wonderful. God invented it as a message to the world of an inseparable bond. Though sin is present, the bond holds, the bond is designed to deepen. And as it points to Christ, we see a deeper bond. Why? Because in Christ, there is no sin. That's why we take communion. He died for the sake of his bride, the church. He died so you could be bonded to him. So that bread and wine doesn't make you any closer to God. It's not magic. It shows you the timeless bond that Jesus has for you. He died so you could be bonded to him, inseparable forever, and have a shameless, perfect union with him in paradise, all of God's people. Let's pray, and then we will partake together. Pray for us. God, thank you so much for the bond of marriage. Thank you for what it shows us. Thank you that marriage is not as good as it gets. Thank you that marriage points us to a much bigger bond. Lord, as Christ said himself, husband and wife will not be married in heaven, but we will be married to God himself. Christ is our husband. We thank you, Lord, so much for this bond. We thank you that marriage, in a sense, is a bit of practice, a bit of a shadow of a greater thing to come. We pray that we would honor it, but we would hold it rightfully as a picture of something greater. God, I pray for my married and my single friends here. Wherever you are calling them, whatever state you're calling them to be in, I pray that they would prize you and that your bond to them would be their motivation. Amen. So here's how we're going to do communion. As we do, I'll have the front row and then progressing backwards.
You will come up, partake. We have wine, or we have uh, juice and bread. I believe there's gluten-free if you need. And then please return back to your seats. And then the next row will come. And please hold, and we will partake of both together. If you are not a believer, if you're not yet convinced, please stay in your seat. In the same way, it's not good for you to get married before you know the Lord or know your spouse. In the same way, it is good for you not to take communion if you're not ready. But if you are, uh, there will be some music playing, and I'll invite the first row to come. God, thank you for dying for people like us. Not just us, but for our spouses if we have them. For our enemies. That there would be people from all nations who could gather around your throne at the end of all of this and to worship you, to love you, to be married to you forever. Lord, help that to motivate us. Not the state of our earthly life, but the hope of the life to come. Let that motivate us and drive us to give of ourselves more. Whether it's to reach beyond our comfort level as singles and, and love and, and seek advice or to just to pursue you more deeply if marriage is not for us or to pursue the wisdom of married friends here if that is something we desire. Whether it's to advise, comfort, correct, let us seek you more closely that we would have a godlier view of marriage no matter where we are, no matter what season we're in. Lord, and I pray that as we look ahead again, Lord, that we would be motivated by who you are, not who we want our spouse to be, not even who we want ourselves to be, but who you are, who taking the form of a servant, died, humbled yourself to the point of death on a cross, for the sake of the bond. Thank you for that bond, Lord. Amen.